Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the All unexplained right, might just we're be. We're back here to get up the chopper for just a minute, you know. I mean, everything kind of cool down, get the gyros down. You know, there's a lot of maintenance that goes into something like that, so it's not so easy. Hey, we're back. This is uh, Rick Wagner here, getting it right here on KNZZ, KGLN, all over western Colorado and eastern Utah, and, uh, of course, on the Internet, and... On the uh, podcast we have up, and you can get our podcast a lot of places. You can get it on Amazon or uh, Apple or at my website, the rickwagnershow.com, where there's a bunch of news stories and stuff, a lot of which we talk about here, and a lot of news stories from around the, around the globe, as it were, uh, that you can take a look at if you want. Now, I thought I would uh, bring something to your attention that uh, I'm sure you probably haven't heard anything about is uh, very shocking, but uh, apparently... Uh, Donald Trump has been has been indicted. Who knew? Now, <laughs> I know I'm 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 being facetious. Uh, I've listened to this I don't know how many dozen times this weekend, and uh, especially on cable news, because as we've said here before, what makes it so exciting is to have someone talk about it for an hour, the topic, and then as soon as their show is over. They just start right in talking about it again. And I, I, I'm sorry, I just, I just don't find that particularly compelling. And, uh, I, I'm trying, you know, to get some information. Not just the same information eh, with a different set of outrage. Uh, we're all outraged. Tell me something I, I don't know. Uh, give me some information about it. And if, if you don't have anything new, mention it and talk about something else that is you know, related to it, or bring somebody in that has a, a different viewpoint or, you know, given some thought about it. This is what Tucker used to do and, and take a topic that everybody else has spoke about and, and make it kind of new. But we're not really seeing that now. And, and I do know it's extremely important. It's extremely important. Don't get me wrong. But we can't just keep rehashing the same thing. And gives people a sense of helplessness, doesn't it? Because at, at the end of it, you hear it all the time. You think, well, what can I do about it? Well, the main thing that you can do about it is vote and make sure your vote counts and get involved with your local organizations, no matter where they are, that have right-thinking individuals in them, and do what you can to turn out the vote. And if we've got to you know, do what the Democrats do, the, the legal part, or the nearly legal part, I guess, we see it as nearly legal, it is legal, uh, ballot harvesting, making sure people get to the polls, driving around, picking people up, take whatever it means to take, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to get it done. Because, uh, you know, the elections we're seeing now, as bad as they are, we may look back on them uh, a little wistfully at some point and say, gosh, I remember those days. That's back in the good old days when uh, they were just doing things that we could just barely see as opposed to just... Uh, you know, right out in the front, just you know, like not letting me vote or something because uh, I uh, have some kind of penalty against me for showing up one day with a MAGA hat or something like that. So uh, it, it's extremely important. And I know it's fatiguing because I was thinking how many years have we been saying on this program and many others as well 
that this is the most important election you're going to see. And it's been true. Each time, those have been incredibly important elections. And they've been elections because that are important because they were an opportunity to draw the line. And we pushed back a little bit from time to time, certainly when we elected Trump. I don't think Trump or us or the people he took in Washington, some of which were kind of poor choices, really anticipated what had been going on in Washington for so long. I, I was shocked, and I thought I was pretty cynical about this this deep state, this inherent body in there that has infested uh, the capital, certainly in Washington, and I, I suspect in a lot of state capitals as well. Uh, you certainly are going to see that in some of these blue places. Look at uh, Illinois, where that idiot Pritzker, the governor, just signed a bill the other day to allow illegal aliens to become police officers. Or non-citizens, I guess. Non-citizens, I'm sorry. So there's something about being detained and arrested in your own country by people that aren't citizens of your own country. And the idea that someone thinks that's the right thing to do doesn't seem to me to be something that they think is going to be helpful. I think it is a right back at you kind of thing. Oh, yeah, you didn't like that? What about this? Pritzker seems like the kind of guy that uh, probably runs that way. Certain, Certainly Gretchen Whitmer uh, over in Michigan is that kind of person, and s- apparently so is the attorney general over there, which is also bringing charges against her pl- last political opponent. Uh, you know, I guess that's the, that's the new thing anymore, right, is uh, bring charges against your... Uh, if you don't, if you win, then the next step is to take out the opposition and not just outraise them and, you know, do this or that, but literally try and put them in jail. This is a South American kind of way. You know, you see that in Peru and places like that. We talk about the banana republics. <laughs> banana, we don't even have the bananas. We just have the really bad situation. And it isn't really a banana republic. I hesitate to say this, but it's, a lot more Eastern European, circa 1962, something like that, you know, khrushchev Eastern European show trials, uh, all kinds of bizarre crimes that you can commit. I was actually looking up, after they were uh, bringing this, this latest indictment against Trump, I was actually looking up some of the laws in Cuba, uh, ways you can get sideways in Cuba with the government, you know. There's some interesting laws there, and a lot of them revolve around things like like uh, undermining the confidence in the government. Yeah, that's against the law. Doing anything that might benefit the United States in some way, and I don't mean like being a spy, but just like doing things that you know could could somehow contribute to their knowledge of what was going on in Cuba. And a lot of uh, two or three d- different ones that are variations on that first one of. You know, undermining confidence, spreading, you know, spreading disinformation, essentially, all these kinds of things. A lot of the laws that uh, you can tell that uh, many people in Washington would really like to see uh, in our law books. It isn't too far away if you look at the way the law is being stretched here in this situation with uh, President Trump. I mean, some of these charges 
And you've heard plenty of legal experts out there, Jonathan Turley and all that, if you watch Fox, and, and all over the place, if you're on the radio, uh, talking about how, well, you know, this is uh, this is right in the face of the First Amendment. And it is. I mean, essentially what they've done is they've they've squeezed and heated and twisted uh, some of the statutes to wrap around the facts to make it seem as though disagreeing with the results of an election and thinking it wasn't fair is somehow illegal. Now, the twist they put on it is fraud. And in order to get where they need to do, they have to say that Donald Trump knew that what he was saying wasn't true. And if he was saying something that wasn't true, to try and do something to stir people up, to have some sort of, uh, they don't use the word insurrection, but that's the implication, then that is by itself a crime. And it's a pretty circuitous way to get to a crime. It's complicated. Those kinds of charges usually have a problem when you bring them in a criminal court, because it's hard to have this sort of lawyer talk with a bunch of jurors who haven't had their minds bounced around long enough to where they think things like that make sense. Jurors, lots of times, if, if it doesn't, if if it doesn't make a lot of sense to them, are going to start thinking, "Well, if it doesn't make a lot of sense, I don't see how I can find somebody guilty of it." So they they choose a an area and a judge, D.C. the district. The judge is really shown herself to be pretty hostile to the Trump administration. And there's a whopping 5% of the people in the district, whether they be drawing their jury pool from, uh, that voted for Trump. So you can guess what kind of thing that is. So that's a perfect place to bring something that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because they're not going to care all that much about doing what you're supposed to do, which is try and match the law to the action. They may just hope that the jurors will match the man to their prejudices. Ah, uh, yeah, folks. So we're stuck. We're stuck in the middle with each other, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. Song about being stuck in the middle, and jokers to the left of me, and clowns to the right. Well, you know, not all of us get to spend a day in Congress. I mean, you have to put up with something, right? So we're back again. I thought we'd talk a little bit about well, a topic that I, I think is timely, and. I actually wrote a uh, piece about this, and I put up a good piece about it on the website, therickwagnershow.com, about this whole thing that I'm sort of fascinated with, you know, the suddenly, uh, gradually and then suddenly idea, right? That things tend to go in uh, a logarithmic fashion when it comes to nation states and so forth. Just like they do, the term was used, you know, on... uh, the sun also rises in Hemingway. You know, they asked the guy how he, I've told the story before, how he went bankrupt. And he said, well, gradually and then suddenly, <laughs> which I laugh about every time I say it. But it works other ways, too. And we've talked about it here before. We've talked a little bit last week. But you, you do wonder about acceleration, right? Logarithms, acceleration, we talked about that. And how do you tell if the speed of the downside of the roller coaster has increased. After a while, the things that are troubling and you seem to understand are self-destructive in the end, seem to become faster and faster and everywhere you look. I mean, so that's a pretty clear clue. 
But how do they add up? I mean, how do they bend the curve as it was? Remember we wanted to bend the curve on COVID? Yeah, we're still trying, I guess. But I'm beginning to think that just two-week thing wasn't true. Uh, but we, how do you bend the curve on a nation? How do you get it down so low that enough things can pile on it to snap it? Because that's kind of what happens. It's kind of a strong tree at some point, right? And at some point, some weight is allowed to get on, and it bends over a little bit. It makes it a little easier for things to jump up on it now. And then the more things that jump up on it that are kind of bad but not super bad, they get up there. And then the lower it gets to the ground, the lower the things are that can get on it. And I guess low we could call as metaphor. But I think that's kind of true. And the more of them that hurl themselves onto the uh, our little tree of state, the more it, bo- it bends. And the more it bends, the more available for these characters it is for them to hop on. And eventually, it's touching the ground. And if it continues to get that low, and everything is then able to hop onto it, because it's no longer out of their reach, because we've allowed it to bend and bend and bend then eventually it might break and not be able to return. Now, we've had times in our history where it's been pretty low, but we've managed to let it pop back up again. I mean, the Civil War is a good example of that. There's also been things, uh, certain panics, financial panics, and things like this that have taken place uh, at the turn of the uh, early part of the 19th century, or the late part of the, of the 18th century. We had some financial crises, uh, things like that. There certainly was... I think a moment that we almost forget in, you know, in the 30s. As I've mentioned before, if you go back and look at the 30s and look at the Samuel Gompers and the Eugene V. Debs and uh, the rise of those pretty socialist groups and how prevalent they were. Hey, even the Kingfisher in Louisiana, he would be long. I mean, with his, you know, a chicken in every pot and a Chevy in every garage kind of thing. If you looked at his policies, it was essentially redistributionist. So we had several years of that. And it wasn't like we just uh, strolled through it and it was these some whack jobs out there on the, on the edges. No, there was, there was some serious conversations about this stuff. But we managed to, managed to weather that. Also, you can go back and look at the House American Activities Commission, HUAC, that was under Joe McCarthy, which is roundly despised now and brought up all the time, you know, oh, blacklisting and this and that. And it was bad. I mean, there were people who were run out of their jobs because of their political viewpoints. And that's, that's not something we do in this country. We do now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but we shouldn't have done then. A lot of these people were essentially, you know, far from dangerous. They really couldn't, you know, get out of their own way. They went to a few meetings of the Communist Party, felt like they were, you know, being cool, maybe, you know, like a beatnik kind of, you know, maybe a beret and a set of bongos and things. And they ended up losing their jobs and not being able to get any others for a while. So, yeah, that was the bad part of it. But the other part of it was that, yeah, there was, in fact, a lot of communist infiltration into the United States during that time. Uh, it was very prevalent. Uh, the Russians aren't fools. Uh, why not spy in the United States and... You know, get our technology and things, <laughs> which the Chinese have decided to pick up on pretty well, uh, rather than try and invent it themselves. I mean, the hydrogen bomb was something that ended up over in the Russia side of things, and not because they figured it out, but we did. 
And so, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. And I think it was kind of a dangerous time. And I think it was a, a dangerous time uh, through the late 50s and early early 60s because there was a lot of jostling around with nuclear powers, the main two, of course, the United States and the Russians. And they had sort of boxed themselves into situations where it was not easy to back down. I mean, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis was was not overdone when you see things about, you know, how scared people were and this and that, because there was there was a moment there where we weren't sure what was going on. And if you look at some of the recovered documents out of Russia that we managed to get a hold of after the fall of the Soviet Union and Wil- Yeltsin was in there and so forth, there were a lot of people in the Soviet Union that were not sure what they were going to do either, that m- now might be the time, right? Uh, one of the dangers that you find in military and statecraft, which match themselves up, especially um, if you read some of the authors that are really good about writing about uh, warfare, will realize that you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Clausewitz is a great example of that. Then you can see that there's this problem that you can have. And Victor Davis Hansen talks about this, and other military historians too, but he, he talks about it very well, is that sometimes a power that is not as in a position to overwhelm another competitor, but pretty close, can look at that competitor and say, they're just getting bigger and they're getting bigger faster than us. And if we act now, we have a chance at stopping that. If we wait, we're not going to catch up to them from what we can see now. And so that breeds this sort of first strike mentality. The idea that you are afraid of someone's power and it doesn't cow you, it makes you want to strike out before they get even more powerful. And wars have started like that you know, numerous times. And they've been more successful than we would think because it's almost always a surprise. The other side thinks that, well, we're doing better than them. They don't have, we don't have this, they don't have that, you know, and so forth. But, you know, they're reasonably close or they, they have uh, certain advantages like that we're in the United States across an ocean and they're uh, right on the border of Europe, you know, things like that, that really... Uh, while you looked in, when you looked at the throw weight, as we like to say, of nuclear missiles and all that kind of thing, yeah, the United States is uh, fairly good position in a good position versus the Soviet Union in, in the sixties and seventies. You also had to look at the fact that to get to that position, we had a lot of things that have to go right. Uh, the Russians. This is what's so funny about the Ukraine situation now. We're on the border of Western Europe. We talk about now about, oh, what about Poland, what about this? Well, they were in Poland. They were in Hungary. They were in East Germany, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, all the way down to Yugoslavia when it was then, right? Before it became Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, the Czech Republic was Czechoslovakia. They were all over that. They were just a hop, skip, and a jump. Or just a hop and a skip. Didn't even need to jump, and they were already in Europe. So, if they move fast, what are we going to do? Are, are we going to decimate part of Europe to stop them? 
Don't know. Russians weren't sure either. I mean, there were Russian tacticians that thought, you know, if we move fast enough, get far enough in there, then they're not going to blow up, you know, half of France to stop us. We'll be able to move in, perhaps uh, fight a, a few battles that aren't maybe even nuclear, and then negotiate a peace that allows us to keep even more land and then wait a little while longer, drain the resources out of these places we've we've uh, conquered again, because that's pretty much how they survived, was draining resources out of what was behind the Iron Curtain. Their own resources not so hot in Russia, or at least their management of them. they got a ton of natural resources. They just don't manage them for beans. And the expertise and so forth is coming out of Eastern Europe. And so maybe they, you know, move fast, fight a couple of battles, uh, get an armistice, get some a piece of Europe, and then wait again. It was it was a close time, and so we've been there before. We can change it back. Just gotta play our cards right. Hey, folks! Thanks for sticking around with us. I appreciate you. Like I want to say every single time, we're back. And uh, I was just considering some things from the first segment, sort of flowed into the second there about our uh, our nation and our justice system and just uh, our institutions. I was trying to think of, of what I felt like was going right in terms of these institutional things, uh, be they private institutions in many instances or public institutions like, well, I don't know, let's pick one, let's say the FBI or the Department of Justice or really anything. I was also interested to hear that, and I heard this in one of the finance channels this week, that Elizabeth Granholm, you remember her, she's a genius in charge of the Department of Energy. Yeah. She's got a lot of interesting problems that don't seem to keep her from having that job. But anyway, I guess before we drew down on the strategic petroleum reserve, I don't know if it was the first or second time, uh, which we should have been doing anyway, right? That's not what that's for is to try and lower gas prices so Biden can get reelected and or so that things look good for the Democrats during House races uh, and Senate races. But, of course, that's what happened. But nevertheless, she was apparently called China to let them know what we were doing, and I guess to make sure it was okay. Didn't want didn't want to rock the boat any, because it was uh, it was a dumb thing to do. Because not only is it dumb to drain our strategic oil reserves for political purposes, I mean that's not just dumb; it's something else. To me, worse than anything they're trying to accuse uh, Donald Trump of. But anyway, what do I know? What makes this especially troubling is that it was to sort of lash back at Saudi Arabia for not increasing production to keep oil prices down. And it's a short-sighted thing because essentially what we were saying, well, what this administration was saying was, well, you know, if you're not going to do it, we'll show you. We'll lower oil prices because we'll flood the market for the petroleum reserve. Well, of course, it didn't work. Because the Saudis' answer is like any 11-year-old kid could have figured out is, that's all fine. That's a finite amount. Well, everything's finite to some extent. But, I mean, it's, it's a relatively small amount when it comes to how much energy is used in the United States. When that's gone, you'll need to buy it from us. And we're going to remember that you were trying to, you know, throw your weight around when you didn't have any weight to throw. And, of course, that's what's been happening. That's why the Saudis have continued to not want to increase Production and in fact have cut it back a couple of times. It's uh, a little uh, return for what Joe's administration, who show the acumen when it comes to well everything, but certainly with energy and strategic thinking of a 
housefly, I think. I don't know. Housefly actually can keep out of the way of the fly swatter pretty good. So there may be something below that. But we've seen what this leads to. And just the idea that she calls China to make sure, you know, well, we don't want to upset anybody here because we're going to strategic petroleum reserve. Oh, yeah, why not? Why not just, why not just start moving parts of the executive branch over to Beijing? It'll save a lot of time. Uh, certainly, we've got a couple of people uh, in the Joint Chiefs. Remember, uh, Milley was uh, calling the Chinese about, you know, things that Trump was doing to make sure it was all okay. You know, don't worry, this Trump guy, you know, I'll let you know if something goes off the rails. You know, there was a time when if they caught you doing that, uh, you would find yourself uh, trying to find some sunlight in a cell at Leavenworth. Now it's just, oh, well, you know, he was doing his duty, I suppose. That's the left's take on this. It's un- it's unbelievable. When you go back and review this stuff, it gives you kind of a feeling of shock, doesn't it? Like, like, how did we get here? I mean, we feel that way now, but when you really go back and look at the way things were just a few years ago, and I didn't think they were going all that great then, uh, that seems like the good old days. It seems like people ought to be wearing, you know, straw boater hats and strolling around drinking lemonade by the gazebo. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the 1890s all over again. It seems that far in the past that uh, things were, you know, kind of semi-normal. And, of course, the biggest thing was that when people were doing things that were like we see all the time now, they at least had the good, you know, the good courtesy to try and hide them. The fact that nobody hides this stuff anymore, that we should just accept this blatant disregard of the United States as being a sovereign nation and feel like that whatever we do with someone else is okay uh, if we give them information, if we side with them against the United States, all this stuff, that's all fine. Matter of fact, we deserve it. That's uh, that's the message now. The United States, in many people's eyes, and a lot of the Gen Zers and so forth, uh, their feeling is that, well, we're so bad. They've been taught that the United States is so bad that we're we're built on stolen land. That uh, if it, if it weren't for slavery before the Civil War, that the country wouldn't be anywhere where it is like now. Just endless uh, assaults on the bedrock ideas about the nation by taking things that were bad and blowing them out of proportion in terms of the overall picture. Doesn't mean they were weren't bad. It just means that they didn't affect the overall picture like they're being taught. But that goes on and on. And because of that, we become inured to this idea that, well, I guess we deserve it, to, you know, that it, that those other people over there. I mean, we're, we're seeing a moral equivalency in many people's eyes between ourselves and the Chinese, and that's just not true. I mean, it's ridiculous. The Chinese are using slave labor today. They are using it to send stuff to us, which we eagerly buy. They keep prices artificially low on their goods and services because they control their economy through totalitarian methods. We're okay with that. We buddy up to them. They're buying land in the United States to essentially spy on us uh, around some of our bases to get farmland, which is probably not a good idea in any sense of the word. And that's okay, too. They're manufacturing fentanyl in China, shipping it to Mexico. Mexico's putting in it, you know, sloppily. Uh, of course, it is an illegal activity, but, you know, sloppily processing them into fake drugs. You know, people think they're getting oxycotton across the border or rather hydrocodone and oxycodone, things like that. And they're really getting fentanyl with uh, 
very uh, casual approach to the dosage. And it's killing people left and right. It comes from China. We know it. it. comes across the border from Mexico. We know it. Seems okay. We're watching our cities. Uh, this is not necessarily a China problem. Uh, watching our cities just become overrun with uh, individuals who do nothing except cause problems. I mean, I hate to say that. You know, California has over half of the homeless people in the United States. And they're there because the weather's a little better in a lot of the, a lot of that state. And they are virtually immune from any kind of law enforcement activity. And it's a very generous situation. California is a study. It's a case study in an open border welfare state. Imagine it as its own country. That it is a welfare state that has no real borders. People come and go as they wish from the southern borders. And I suppose they come and go as they wish from Oregon. Sure. It pretty much is California. Now, those of you who might be in Oregon, I recognize that the west side of Oregon and the east side of Oregon are very different. So I don't want to paint you all the broad brush. But that's what happens. It's sort of like the United States. Extremely wealthy, extremely well-to-do. And then over a period of time, it just has degraded to where people don't want to live there anymore. They can't afford to live there anymore. They don't want to live there anymore, even if they can't afford to live there anymore. Uh, they are taxed. They are regulated. And what rights we think are immutable in the United States are just practically ignored there. There's a, uh, and you probably have heard this, there's a bill in the California legislature, which is a super majority of Democrats, big surprise, that tries to criminalize parents who talk too much at school board meetings. I mean, we've, we've reached the point now where there's not really much effort to fight back in discourse. The left has realized that they don't have to listen. They can just shut you up one way or another. And it seems like no one, the courts don't want to stop them. Certainly not very many of the California courts. And the Biden administration has been appointing judges left and right. We talked about how many judges that Trump appointed, and he did get a lot done. But the Biden administration, just as fast as they can get them pushed through. And they're not just people who are on the left. They are on the far left, in left field, in the bleachers, at the very top, waving. That's how far left they are. And that's who's getting appointed on the bench. And it doesn't even seem to matter if they're particularly good judges or lawyers. They just need to have a certain point of view. We see that a couple of the appointments in some of the higher courts that we're all aware of. And this has become kind of a uh, California. Then to get back to that is is sort of sort of become our future if we're not careful. Remember, uh, we had a couple of three British politicians say that look. We're, we're where you will be in four or five years. And I think that California is where the rest of the country will be in two or three years, certainly four years, if something isn't done. It's always been the leader in things. Sometimes we're good, you know, modifying cars. <laughs> 
getting, you know, really cool cars, you know, a lot of customization. They did that, you know, the, there was a time when they made good movies out there. There was a time when all sorts of good things happened in California. There was a time when one of the most innovative places in the world. And now they've become a retrograde wokeism. It would be a Stalinist kind of feeling to it, except they have more sunshine. Other than that, it still would have that same feeling of that drab, concrete, cold weather sort of striding around uh, in a heavy coat in uh, near Lubyanka. But imagine the same thing in a floral shirt and shorts. Uh, that's kind of California, the way it's headed now. So it's a good study for us to see. But the, it, not all hope is lost out there. There's there's really good people. And someone sent me, my friend Patricia sent me this, and it is from a gentleman who is running for Senate in Virginia. And it's such a good video about what he's trying to say. I want to play it for you guys. It, it gives you hope, okay? It starts out, and it's, I don't think it started out with him knocking on something, and you should hear that, but he'll explain it. This is the scariest sound you will hear when you live in a communist country. This is the last sound my parents heard when their fathers were taken away in the middle of night, and they never saw their loved ones again. That's the sound of losing your freedom, the sound of always living in fear. That's my family's real-life story. We escaped from Vietnam just days before Saigon fell to the communists. We were given a new life in the most generous country on earth. America saved my life. I graduated from the United States Naval Academy. I earned a master's in physics and fellowships at MIT and Harvard before the left replaced merit with racial quotas. I spent my life trying to repay my debt to America, my country, our country. With 25 years of service in Navy Special Operations, combat in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. But now our country has taken a dark turn. That's Joe Biden's Justice Department sending two dozen armed agents to arrest a pro-life activist in front of his family. That's Joe Biden's IRS raiding a gun shop and seizing thousands of records from law-abiding gun owners. Our names, our addresses, our social security numbers. That's Joe Biden arresting his challenger in the next election, a former president of the United States. And now a different sound. That's the sound of someone breaking into your home or business. The sound of crime destroying our cities and communities. That's how it all starts. They let criminals back on our streets. Millions of illegal immigrants pour across our border each year, including military-aged men from all over the world and enough fentanyl to kill every man, woman, and child in this country. And the Biden family? Well, that's how it works in a dictatorship. The rules don't apply to the rulers. We are losing our country. You know it, but you also know you can't say it. We're forced to say that wrong is right. We're forced to lie. We can't let that happen. I've been all over the world. Believe me when I tell you, if America fails, there's nowhere else to go. I'm Hung Kao, retired Navy captain running for the United States Senate. I still believe America can be the land of opportunity. I have an obligation to fight back against those who want to control our lives and disrupt our families. We need real fighters, not politicians, 
Not bureaucrats. Not keyboard warriors acting tough in a custom-made suit. No. Not here in America. We must refuse to be intimidated. We must be fearless. I'm Hong Kao. I'm running for Senate, and I approve this message because I'm not done fighting for us. Yeah, that's quite a message, isn't it? I couldn't resist playing that whole thing. I, I think I, I really appreciate receiving it. Uh, this person, Hung Kao, who is a, a really exceptional man, his, uh, his story, what he's accomplished, coming here from Vietnam, getting a master's degree in physics, going into the United States Navy, becoming a special forces operative, Retiring as a captain, which is a colonel in you know the other uh, branches, and wanting to do something for this country because of what this country's done for him, and that pounding you hear is of course what you hear at your door, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes during the day. That sound of someone pounding on your door. Who's there to do no good. And that's a powerful message. But it's uplifting. Sure, he, I think, extremely better than I could do, encapsulates so many of the problems. But the fact that he's there, the fact that there are people out there that feel that way, and they're trying to get involved and trying to do something, makes me feel a lot better. And I think it it should make you feel better too. His name is Hung Kao. That's it. And that's C-A-O. And he's uh, running for the Senate. I know these, these elections get started so soon in Virginia. And I'm going to follow his, his, his arc. He's an exceptional, exceptional person and has a lot of experience. It's like a lot of people that either come from or had a lot of experience in. Uh, radical socialist or communist or just plain old totalitarian systems. He knows. And he's very, very articulate about it. So I, I wanted to let you guys play that, uh, hear that rather. I think that, like I said, it should be uplifting though there are people out there like that. And it should inspire us to do what little bit we can. Because every little thing that we do contributes to the momentum of trying to get things into a situation that makes some kind of sense for the long-term survival of our country in a way that will ensure our own liberty, our own prosperity, and ultimately our happiness. So I think that's something that we cannot have too much of. I also noticed uh, a lot of you had enjoyed something I posted on the website, uh, A Day in History, about... uh, the day that it was, let's see, 1192, so it was certainly history, July 27th, 1192. And it was uh, when Richard the Lionheart and a bunch of Christian knights defeated a horde of Muslims at the uh, Battle of Jaffa, which I've read about several different times. Now, to start off with, Richard the Lionheart deserves the name the Lionheart. He was extremely brave, extremely uh, charismatic. He loved battle, and uh, he was real good at it. (laughs) He did not like ruling all that much. He didn't like being king except the fact that he could 
lead battles. And so he wasn't a great king in that sense. Uh, he spent a lot of time fighting other places rather than being in England. He spent very little of his life in England. But what he did do was pretty amazing. And uh, the Crusades, as we know them to be, have gotten a very, very bad rap. Now, some of it's very well deserved. A lot of the Crusades to take back the Holy Land uh, from the Muslims was were, rather, inspired by people who thought it would be a good way to make some money. And just, just long and short of it. Many of them, many, many of them were fired by uh, a religious impulse. But as things went on, it broke down when they, when they came to these places, found a lot of wealth and so forth. And then people thought, well, maybe we should just stay here for a while. And yeah, there's a lot to be had here. And some of it kind of broke down. But in many times, the impulses were not anything like we see portrayed in the modern media today. There was enormous heroism on the part of both sides, really. Uh, the crusaders were really of a completely different type of, uh, let's say, fighting man than the Muslims. Because it, it, the, first, the climates were different. The situation was different in terms of the terrain and so forth. And the I'm trying to sum this up. The, the first place is people talk about there's some parody in the Muslim world. Well, they certainly had a lot of good things going there. Let's not get ourselves at this time, 1192 and so forth. But here's the fact. The whole of Europe was able to mount a campaign to transport tens of thousands of men, horses, siege equipment, food, and other logistical items all the way across the continent, many of them from as far away as Britain, where Richard was supposedly from, he was kind of from Britain, and have a sustained battle, you know, in near Jerusalem, Jaffa, and those kinds of places. This was something that the Muslim world at that time was incapable of doing. They were not able to have shipping, that that would be that effective, and they could not invade Europe from that way, the way that crusaders could invade them. So there was a technological advantage there. Also, there was just an interesting thing, if you studied it, that mounted knights in armor, heavy mounted cavalry, was something that was just not seen over there. And so they could charge and beat a lot of these guys down, but then they were also susceptible to these guys fading away into the background. And if they overstretched themselves, they were too heavy and too interesting and too interested in chasing people, and they'd get have a lot of problems. Very interesting to look at. If you want to study it, you should. We'll be back next week.